welcome to Word Online. Hello and welcome to series six and episode 12, entitled Jesus Challenges False Teaching. We're going to be studying from um, Matthew chapter 16, verses 1 to 12, and there's a parallel passage in Mark's Gospel as well. Well, this is the last episode in series six. So it's an opportunity for us to just look back over series six and all the things that have happened at this particular point in Jesus' ministry, because things are going to change quite dramatically in series seven, as we will see very shortly in future episodes. Series six describes the third tour of Galilee that Jesus undertook both on his own with his disciples and also having sent them out independently in pairs to travel around and to preach um, towards the beginning of this particular tour, as recorded in Matthew chapter 10, which we studied at the very beginning of this series. It's been a very dramatic tour, but it's the third tour. And in fact, it's the final tour of Galilee that Jesus conducts, because as we're going to find out shortly, Jesus is now going to uh, change his focus from Galilee towards Jerusalem. So the third tour has been very dramatic. The first tour, just going back a little bit in series three, was really the launch of Jesus' ministry. Came on the scene with a, with a big explosion of uh, excitement with miracles and healing and teaching in synagogues and so forth. And we described that very carefully in series three. Then having appointed 12 apostles as his uh, special delegated representatives, he gave all the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount in series four, which is a very important part of the building up of the kingdom community that Jesus was undertaking. And this provided all the ethical and religious and spiritual framework for the new discipleship community. And then in series five, we had the second tour where the 12 are established in their role. They're traveling closely with Jesus, observing him, learning from him. Then now in series six, they've had some time operating independently, traveling around and preaching. Now the atmosphere in series six has intensified. There's been an, an intensification of support for Jesus among some people, and this was represented particularly by the feeding of the 5,000. And we looked at that carefully and several times I've commented subsequently on the significance of that event because at the end, as John says in John 6 verse 15, uh, the people got so excited at that time, a very large crowd gathered, the largest recorded number in Jesus' ministry, that they wanted to make him king by force. They wanted him to kind of take over the country. So popular support is rising. Political aspirations are being attached to Jesus, uh, which are not things that he's uh, wanting attached. But nevertheless, that is taking place on the one hand. Some people are getting frustrated that he doesn't take over the government, so to speak, take over from the local king, King Herod Antipas, take over from the Romans in Jerusalem and so forth but he's not uh, doing that. So there's a great deal of popular support, some degree of frustration, and some people dropping off supporting him. And then on the other hand, the storm clouds have been gathering. Two particular storm clouds that we can identify in series six. 
The first one comes from the local king of the Galilee area, King Herod Antipas. Uh, we've mentioned him on many occasions before, and we've mentioned that his um, headquarters was in the city of Tiberias, which was right there on the western coast of the Sea of Galilee, very close to Jesus' headquarters, a uh, little bit further north in Capernaum. And Herod Antipas has not made any direct moves against Jesus, but he has made a direct move against John the Baptist. First of all, he imprisoned him. And then subsequently, as we saw here in series six, he suddenly decided to execute him under pressure from his wife, Herodias. So the storm clouds are gathering. What is Herod Antipas going to do next? Because this popular movement that's surrounding Jesus is just simply getting bigger and bigger. And although it's not overtly political, uh, it's very easy for it to turn political or perhaps he might imagine it would turn violent or the crowds would um, invade his city of Tiberias and call for his overthrow. All sorts of scenarios might be running through his mind. There's no record of any of these things happening, but Herod Antipas would be concerned. So that's one storm cloud. The other storm cloud that has arisen is the ever-increasing uh, hostile attentions and decisions and determinations of the religious establishment. And they are represented, generally speaking, by their activists, the Pharisees. But other parts of the religious establishment are represented as well, such as the Sadducees. And we'll discuss these groups in our episode today. Already, as recorded in Matthew 12, verses 22 to 24 in the subsequent passage, there's been a formal denouncement of Jesus from the religious establishment as a false messiah operating under the power of evil forces and not under the power of the Holy Spirit. And the confrontations continue. There's a very strong confrontation we recorded um, in an episode uh, just a little bit back in time from the moment we're describing here where the Pharisees came and confronted Jesus about a number of issues of obedience to the law and accused his disciples of disobeying the law of Moses. In fact, that wasn't true, as we looked at, but they're really challenging Jesus very hard. So there's a storm cloud coming from the religious establishment. This is originating from Jerusalem, from the ruling council, the Jewish religious ruling council called the Sanhedrin. They're sending representatives to Galilee. They're trying to undermine Jesus. They're trying to turn people away from him. So two storm clouds, the political storm cloud from Herod Antipas, potentially, and the definite storm cloud of opposition that's coming from the religious establishment. So these are some of the background events. So complex is all this process that Jesus took some time out. He went to Phoenicia and then to Decapolis and performed some miracles there in two separate Gentile territories to the north and to the east of Galilee. Uh, we've just seen these events and the miracles uh, associated with them. And as our story starts today, Jesus is returning from the Decapolis, east of the Sea of Galilee, um, back over into Jewish Galilee on the western side. And very shortly after that, there's another uh, big discussion about um, false teaching. So we're now going to uh, read the passage uh, that we have for this episode and it's Matthew 16, verses 1 to 12. 
Let's just read the previous verse, Matthew 15, verse 39 as well, because this uh, describes the connecting moment when Jesus had fed the 4,000, which is the last episode, the second half of the last episode, and then what happened at the end of that particular occasion. So starting in the last verse of Matthew 15. After Jesus had sent the crowd away, he got into the boat and went to the vicinity of Magadan. The Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. He replied, when evening comes, you say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, today it will be stormy for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. Jesus then left them and went away. When they went across the lake, the disciples forgot to take bread. Be careful, Jesus said to them. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They discussed this among themselves and said, it's because we didn't bring any bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked, you of little faith, why are you talking amongst yourselves about having no bread? Do you still not understand? Don't you remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? Or the seven lo loaves for the 4,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? How is it you don't understand that I'm not talking to you about bread? But be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood he was not telling them to guard against the yeast used in bread, but against the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Pharisees and Sadducees tested him by asking him a question. This is a regular occurrence. And uh, it happens again that they're coming and they're really pushing. This is the storm cloud of religious opposition that is building up in strength. This is not the first time that they ask the question about having a sign from heaven and not the first time that Jesus had actually pronounced on this particular question. So for a moment, we just need to go back in the text to Matthew chapter 12, just to remind ourselves of the previous uh, direct confrontation where these similar issues were discussed. So in Matthew 12, uh, verse 24, the Pharisees, after a particular miracle, uh, when they heard this, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the, Baal, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. This is their pronouncement on Jesus as a false messiah. Then in verse 38, after Jesus had made a robust reply to that statement, then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asked for a sign, but none will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of of the earth. 
So you can see the similarity between that incident some time ago and this similar question here. And Jesus in verse four is very clear. None, no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. Well, what do we mean by the sign of Jonah? The story of Jonah is uh, one of the major prophetic stories of the Old Testament. Jonah was a, an Israelite prophet, and you're probably familiar with the story, and we discussed it when we looked at the incident in Matthew 12. There's a small book of Jonah in the Old Testament that describes the story vividly. But as he was called by God to go from Israel to the uh, regional superpower at the time, Assyria, and their capital city, Nineveh, he decided he didn't want to do that. He was frightened. He fled in the opposite direction, got on a boat. He went westward rather than going eastward. A storm came and eventually he ended up being thrown off the, off the boat in a storm and being swallowed up by a huge fish for uh, three days before the fish vomited him out and he ended up on the land. That's a story described as a real life event in the Old Testament and verified as such by Jesus, by the way. So the significance of this is as described more fully uh, by Jesus on the previous discussion, uh, that for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So that incident of Jonah is a kind of symbol or metaphor for the death and then the resurrection of Jesus, because Jonah experienced what can only be described as a kind of coming back to life, because obviously one would assume he would die in those circumstances. It was only the miraculous provision of God that kept him alive. And so Jesus, in a similar way, will die and then be apparently permanently dead and then suddenly miraculously come to life on the third day. And so Jesus is saying to the religious leaders there, if you want a sign, the big sign to you, the final indicator of who, who I am, my real identity will be my death and my resurrection, the sign of Jonah. Now, the physical miracles, the remarkable things that Jesus did had not persuaded them. In fact, they had argued that he'd used an evil power in order to perform these miracles. And so Jesus is not trying to persuade them through those type of miracles because they've been prejudiced against the reality of them and they've attributed them to a source other than the power of God. But the point about this sign here is it's greater than all of those things. And this particular sign can't be performed by Jesus in his earthly life because he will have died at that point. So the sign of Jonah is a sign of a greater power than just Jesus himself, the power of his Father, the Holy Spirit, the Trinity of God working together, Jesus physically dead, but raised again to life, is a dramatically greater miracle than any of the miracles of his earthly ministry. And that's the sign that Jesus said will be given to that generation. But he calls them a wicked generation because they've hardened their heart and what he means by the generation is the people of the country who are influenced by their religious leaders. Now, that's not everybody by any means. But the religious leaders still had a huge amount of influence. And so after that brief 
conversation which Jesus cut short. He then enters into a discussion with his disciples as they're crossing over from one part of the lake to another and they've forgotten to bring some bread on board for the journey that they're going to take. And Jesus uses this as an opportunity to use the analogy of yeast to describe the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And Mark 8 in verse 15, which is the parallel account, also adds in that Herod and the followers of Herod are also in Jesus's mind. So we're going to comment on that in just a moment. So Jesus identifies three types of dangerous teaching and influence, that of the Pharisees, the Sadducees and the Herodians. Now yeast, generally speaking, is an image in the Bible for negative influence spreading from one place to another. Just as yeast in dough will spread throughout the dough, will have an equal influence all over the dough and cause the bread to rise, so yeast in a negative spiritual sense will infect the whole of whatever is being described. It'll affect the whole of the nation of Israel, in fact. So this negative teaching of the Pharisees, the Sadducees and the Herodians is going to have a negative teaching throughout the whole nation. And Jesus says, be warned. There's something very negative coming from them and something that must be resisted. Now, in order to work out what he's talking about, we need to draw some evidence from different parts of Scripture and uh, the Gospel accounts. And we find that there are distinctives of the Pharisees, the Sadducees and the Herodians that uh, Jesus will have had in mind. Let's think, first of all, of the Pharisees. There are a number of things that they are particularly criticised for by Jesus. Luke 12 verse 1 says, Jesus said, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So the first and fundamental problem with the Pharisees is they said one thing and they did another. They concentrated on external religious activities, while internally there was moral corruption and double standards. That's the first thing that Jesus explicitly criticizes them for. And Luke, in Luke 16, verse 14, commenting on the Pharisees, when Jesus was telling a parable that related to the use of financial resources and money and so on, Luke 16, verse 14, Luke comments, the Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. Second criticism, they loved money. Hypocrisy, double standards, and secondly, they loved money. They were motivated by financial gain, even though they made um, a big thing about giving money away and tithing and being generous to the poor. They actually loved money. The third criticism is that of legalism. So in Mark 7, uh, we've had a discussion between the Pharisees and Jesus, which we commented on uh, in an earlier episode in series six. And Jesus accused them of legalism, by which he meant that the legitimate laws of Moses, which they should obey, were being added to by their own human traditions and laws and being imposed on others 
as if they were the law of God. So Mark 7 verse 8 says, you have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. That's Jesus speaking to the Pharisees. You've let go of the law of Moses and you're holding on to human traditions. That's legalism. And the final element of the teaching of the Pharisees is their outright rejection of Jesus as Messiah, as indicated in Matthew 12, verse 24, which we looked at just a moment ago. So there are many reasons why the teaching of the Pharisees is dangerous. It's like yeast. It's going to go all the way through the nation of Israel, corrupt the nation of Israel and um, persuade many people not to acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah. Now, what about the teaching of the Sadducees? We've said less about the Sadducees than the Pharisees so far. They appear a bit more prominently in the events in Jerusalem at the end of Jesus' life. And we'll have reason to discuss them in a little bit more detail then. They were another religious group who were influential in the religious establishment. They had um, members of their group on the ruling Sanhedrin, and many of the Sadducees were also priests. But this particular religious group had a significant disbelief in the supernatural. And they even doubted the afterlife, which was a fundamental conviction of Judaism at the time, and seems a very strange thing to say. But for example, in Matthew 22, verse 23, Matthew writes, that same day the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. So they doubt the physical resurrection. They doubted the existence of angels. And they had a disbelief in elements of the supernatural. They also joined with the Pharisees in denouncing Jesus as a false messiah. So we've mentioned the Pharisees. We've mentioned the Sadducees, but as I noted in Mark's account of this same event, he adds in that Jesus mentioned Herod and the Herodians, which are the followers of King Herod, Antipas and other members of the Herod family. So why should we uh, be concerned about them? Well, Herod had just executed John the Baptist for a start. I mentioned that earlier on. So Herod Antipas is a danger to Jesus and his followers because he can turn against them as someone who, although fascinated by Jesus, was not a follower and felt deeply threatened by Jesus. And also Mark notes, very interestingly, as an early comment on the followers of Herod Antipas, known as the Herodians, in Mark 3 and verse 6, we have a very interesting statement. This is right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. This is the earliest reference to a plot to get rid of Jesus in, in all the Gospels. And the interesting thing is the Pharisees are associated with the Herodians in this particular respect. So here is a political faction motivated by maintaining the political status quo, who had the capacity to turn against Jesus because he was a perceived threat to their political uh, power. 
Now, at the same time, we also know that there were members of um, Herod's establishment and of his army uh, who were deeply influenced by Jesus. We think of the centurion from the Capernaum area. Um, and we think of the women who followed Jesus as recorded at the beginning of Luke 8, one of whom is described as the wife of the ruler of Herod's household. So we know that influential people around Herod are following Jesus, but we know that most of his political followers are warning him against Jesus as being a threat. Now, having said all that and understood what Jesus was talking about, let's think for a moment and reflect what kind of applications we may make from this intriguing passage. First of all, just to summarise, that these types of teachings involved, first of all, the refusal to accept Jesus as the Messiah. That's the Pharisees' primary opposition to Jesus. Secondly, religious scepticism. That's really the position of the Sadducees. And thirdly, political opposition from the Herodians. And the interesting thing is to think, how can these realities apply in the modern world, in my country or in your country? And of course, we all live in different parts of the world under different political systems and in different cultures. And so our, our response to that question will be very different depending on where we live. But I would want to say that these challenges still exist today very, very firmly. Jesus can be misunderstood and his identity resisted at a religious level. And there are many religious systems that would ask questions or be sceptical or even be opposed to the idea that Jesus is the unique divine son of God, the Messiah, the saviour, someone who has the ability to forgive sins and create new spiritual life and someone who rules over this whole world and ultimately that rule will be manifest when he returns in power. Now all the major religions of the world outside Christianity will have fundamental questions about those claims. Skepticism such as that of the Pharisees is very common in our modern world. The Sadducees were skeptical of certain elements of the supernatural reality. Now, that scepticism has developed a lot further in the modern world, particularly uh, where Western culture has been influential. We live in an age in Western life of scepticism, scepticism about religion, scepticism about the supernatural. And also, thinking of the Herodians, all over the world, politicians, those in power, Dictators and rulers will persecute Christians. They will oppose Christians and see them as a threat. That's happening as I'm speaking. I've read news in the last 24 hours that tells me of imprisonment and persecution and attacks on churches that have taken place in several continents. I've been reading about it just as I've been preparing this talk. It's a reality in our world. The 
Herodian tendency to oppose the spiritual truth for political reasons is still present in our world. Therefore, we can learn some things from what Jesus is saying. We can take encouragement that he understood these type of issues. And he saw very clear examples in groups he was dealing with in his time and in his culture, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Herodians, and indeed others who are not mentioned here. So the church needs to be on its guard. And we need to affirm very clearly, first of all, the identity of Jesus. When other religious traditions would modify or undermine that identity, would dilute it in some way, then the church needs to be very clear. Jesus' uniqueness is uh, very profoundly stated all the way through the New Testament and all the way through the Gospels. Secondly, we need to be very committed to the view that we believe in the supernatural activity of God today by the power of the Holy Spirit. We don't want a form of religious scepticism to uh, creep into the church. We believe in God's power today operating in similar ways that it operated in Jesus' time because he gave his Holy Spirit to his followers. And finally, we need to be cautious and careful where the state wants to take control of the church. An ideal situation for the Church of Jesus Christ is to be free from direct control from the state and to be very, very wise in handling itself when the state seeks to exercise undue influence over its organisation, its life, its finances, its belief and its proclamation of the gospel. So we need to beware of the yeast, the influence of groups like the Pharisees, the Sadducees and the Herodians in modern society. You'll find ways of making application of this teaching uh, in your culture and in your country as I can in mine. And we should take courage. Jesus saw all these things coming and he equipped the church to deal with them. Thanks for listening. You have been listening to Martin Charlesworth for Word Online. To find out more, visit wordonline.org.